Thanks for choosing a 3CR podcast. Throughout June 2022, we're running our annual Radiothon when we ask you, the listener, to make a donation so that we can continue to make great radio. Your donation will help keep us community-owned and community-controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. And with that done, please enjoy your podcast. Good morning and welcome to The Gardening Show on 3CR. Uh, My name's Stephen Ryan and I'm your host for this morning trying to work out the panel and so far it's all going well so it's got to fall apart at some point. Uh, And this morning we have gentlemen from either side of Melbourne. Uh, We've got Craig Wilson from Gentiana Nursery. How are you this morning, Craig? Very well, thank you, Stephen. That's good. Thought out now I'm in here. (laughs) Yes. Oh, yes, it's pretty pretty iffy when you're especially up in the hills. And Greg Balderston, who's, of course, from the Romsey area. So we're coming from all over the place this morning. It was was wet and cold up up our way too, wasn't it? It Well, uh, I guess we we should expect it. Yeah. Uh, I'm not complaining. It's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and good rains. So, yeah, so what happens next is all my bare rooted trees arrive and everything turns to mud. Okay. <laughs> that's yeah. that's the next thing that's going to happen, I'm sure. Um, so um, yes, so welcome everybody this morning. Don't forget to ring in. Uh, if you want to ring in, uh, I'll start by giving the number to remind people so that we can get underway reasonably early this morning. Uh, the talkback number is nine four one nine zero one double five. That's nine four one nine. 0155. And if you want to text us a question, but remember, it needs to be almost a yes or no question if you're going to text, because if we need more information, it doesn't help us. But you can text us on 048880955. So that's 048880955. So do come online, engage with us this morning. We'd love to hear from you. And um, uh, you know, we're here at your uh, convenience. So if you've got a question on almost any sort of plant life or gardening technique or whatever that you'd like to talk to us about, um, we're here to help you. So give us a ring and have a chat to us on 3CR, The Gardening Show. Now, um, what's happening in the Dandenongs at the moment? Is there anything interesting happening up there, Craig? By way of events or...? No, just thing, you know, gardening things. Is there anything interesting in the garden growing, potentially? Oh, or... Always. Yeah. I mean, it's really camellias that carry me over at this time of the year yeah. until the early, early um, or midwinter bulbs come yeah. up. Mm. Yeah. But, the, the, yeah, the, I mean, the garden's always, there's something mm. happening, yeah. Actually, that does raise an issue. It, it always strikes me as odd that people get a rush of blood every time the spring hits and they go rushing out to the nurseries oh. and they buy everything that's in flower then. Worst <laughs> time to plant. Yeah, it's not a great time to no, plant. And, no. and you, you get sort of, you end up with a spring-oriented garden because you tend to buy the things that are looking good at that time of the yeah. year. I'm assuming you do the same I do. I try and encourage my customers to make a regular visit. That's right. To see what's happening throughout yeah. the year. So, and, and really, in terms of the garden, spring would be the last thing you'd plant for because mm. it just happens anyway. <laughs> yes, it's all, yes, it's almost <laughs> inevitable, isn't it? Yes. It's, it's like the colour pink. Yeah. You try and 
keep pink out of a garden and see what happens. <laughs> That's right. You know, so there's so many good plants that tend to have pink forms of it yeah. that you inevitably end up with pink in the garden. So uh, I not only don't plant for spring, I also don't necessarily plant for pink yeah. um, because I know I'm going to end up with pink things anyway. So uh, uh, I don't go to my way to create the Barbara Cartland-esque border or anything like that. I have it's to say. unavoidable. Yeah, it is. It really is. You, yeah. you just end up like that. Yeah. It's, it's the way it is. Uh, and is there anything interesting happening in your garden at the moment, Greg? Oh, my garden's not much to look at anyway because <laughs> I spend all my week in other people's gardens doing stuff. So, uh, uh, yeah, so it's the uh, Yeah, but, but there, sort of there's always, like Craig was saying, the, the winter's a time often for subtleties as well. You, you're um, looking a lot closer at the buds and mm-hmm. the idea that nothing happens over winter's just not the case because yeah. even looking at the buds of deciduous trees, you can see the, the changes in how they've developed and mm. them stretching out and then pausing again. Yeah. And um, So there's all these wonderful subtleties. And also the native forest at this time of year is absolutely stunning as well. Mm. So if you're not happy with your own garden at this time of the year, go and have a look at yeah, go for a go, walk. Go for a walk in the forest somewhere. <laughs> yeah. It's now, you know, actually, mosses and lichens and mushrooms. Oh, and yeah, oodles of that sort of stuff. It just looks fantastic at the moment. But your garden should have an interesting collection of aroid leaves at this time of yes. year, should it not? I was going to meet, and I actually have bought, that's one of the plants I did bring, bring in a weed, uh, essentially, but a, quite a lovely weed, it's a little um, uh, Arasarum vulgare. Yeah. Yes, uh, people think it's a cobra lily, but it's not really yeah. the true cobra lily. Um, I think monk's cowl is one of the names yeah, I know. Yeah, friar's cowl or something yeah, like that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and it is a thug. It's a huge thug, and you'll never get rid of it if you've got it. Mm. And if you have it in a pot and don't move the pot often enough, it'll escape out the bottom. <laughs> um, so it's something you need to be really careful with. But uh, if you've got a big con- a big old conifer that you don't want to chop out for whatever reason and nothing else grows underneath it, these will, and they grow over winter too. So you've got something as in those uh, colder months um, just don't plant it in, in anywhere near a native forest or yeah. where you don't want it because you're not going to – it's very hard to get rid of. Almost impossible. Almost yeah. impossible. Yeah. 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 But it is a pretty plant and that does raise the issue of, <clears throat> you know, one person's weed can be somebody else's cherished plant because it can be useful in difficult spots. I've actually got that plus Aromatallicum, another – Yep. Potentially nasty weed, but both growing in the root system of a huge ulnus tree mm. um, where almost nothing else nothing grows. Nothing else grows there. Um, yeah. And the foliage of the arum and of the arasarum are just lovely mm. during the winter months. Mm. Um, although I have to say, I wish I'd put one of the selected forms of arum metallicum in instead of just the just wild. Just the ordinary one. Yeah. Are they as, as invasive? Don't seem to be. I've got okay. one called White Winter that I imported years ago from mm. America, which has much, much whiter veins in the leaves. And another one called Chameleon, which has this really lovely marbled. Yeah, and that, that, neither of those. They don't seem to yeah. take off. Okay. Um, Although my uh, hybrid with Purpurea spathum seems. I, it, it's not as strong as Italicum, but it, it does seem yeah. slightly on the thuggish side. <laughs> yeah. um, but that has. It's basically got the Italicum variegation, mm. but it's got black, d- deep burgundy black flowers, mm. um, which. I'd be quite happy to have a huge patch of that. Yeah, well, and that's the other thing. Some of these plants are just so pretty and so attractive at a season when other things aren't. That uh, and they disappear in the summer. They're, they're not there to cause any grief with your summer growing plants. Um, 
I've a few times thought, will I let one of the arums loose in my perennial border? Because it would give me foliage after I've cut the perennials down. Um, and I haven't done it. Oh, actually, I have done it to an extent. I have put chameleon into one of my perennial borders, but it's sort of staying fairly restrained on the edge of the border. Um, but they're really useful as foliage plants through the winter. I have lots yeah. of arums in my garden, yeah. but not necessarily the thug ones. Yeah. Um, I find them to be really good. Like mm. Dioscoroides, is that the correct yeah. pronunciation? Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're equivalent of like hostas as yeah. far as foliage go, but That's they're right. winter hostas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they're great yeah. plants. They are. Uh, and the, this... fo- the flowers are, are, are sort of subtly beautiful. They're not, yeah. they're not classically sort of pretty like a rose or something, oh. but they're such almost gothic-looking flowers that yeah. they've got to attract attention. Yeah. And, and while the colour palette's not huge, it's interesting. Like there's, it's basically greens and burgundies uh, pretty much, but um, the smell's not always great, but (laughs) um, uh, like Arum Dioscoridus is a beautiful green flower with black splotches on it, like someone's Mm -hmm. flicked some uh, ink onto, onto the flower. But it does smell like horse diarrhoea a little bit. But it's only <laughs> for a couple great. of days. Yeah, yeah I don't yeah. care. Anyway. And, and look, it's a great practical joke because you say to people, oh, go in and smell that. And they're assuming you're <laughs> sending them in to, say, to smell a nice flower. <laughs> smell a nice flower, and it's not. Yeah. So that's part of the fun. Yeah. But, so I think they're great plants. But this one that Greg's bought in, it, it, it depends, I think, entirely on the sort of garden you have. Mm. From my oh, point definitely. of view, it's yeah. horrendous. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Because I have all my simple You haven't got any vacuums. No, You've got no, no space I want filled. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, in my my case, underneath a big ulnus tree, mm-hmm. where I wouldn't be able to get erythroniums or anything much growing under there. I mean, in yeah. midsummer, it becomes a desert in that area of the garden. And in fact, there's some Clerodendron bungii growing in there as well, which suckers all over the place. Mm-hmm. But I have to water it in the summer to keep it standing up because it gets so dry in there that the mm. leaves all flag. Um, so it's a really difficult part of the garden. And I'm certainly not taking the ulnus down because it's a rare... Um, uh, Peruvian one, mm. um, and has great big leaves on it and has long, long catkins in the late winter. It's a very elegant and beautiful tree. It's not like that dreadful Ulnus Durolescens, which <laughs> I think is a really boring tree. This is uh, the evergreen one that everyone planted yeah. in the 80s. Oh, God, yes. Mm. Uh, what a bad choice of tree that well, turned out. It nearly disappeared. Which is probably a good, good. thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the millennial drought put pay to a lot of those mm-hmm. because they do need a fair bit of irrigation. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah so well, and, and like when you're planting a tree, it's a long-term mm-hmm. project. You're yeah. not planting a tree for a couple of years and then you'll swap it for another one. Yeah. Um, these types of aroids and these types of plants, you you think of them in the same way. It's a long-term thing because you're not going to get rid of it. It's yeah. harder to, to get, get rid, rid of, of them than a tree. Is, yeah, you put a for sale sign out the front. That's, bit, <laughs> that's the only way you leave them behind. Mm. Uh, actually, we should move on. AB sent me a message um, during the week uh, that came in as an email here um, and we might deal with this, and both of you would have opinions on this particular topic, I think. It's from a lady called Erin, and she's in, uh, she's just north of Barrel. So, somebody interstate, I hope you're listening this morning, Erin. Um, it's about tree dahlias, uh, and uh, she's been growing tree dahlias for a few years now, and they are spectacular. Some of the canes are probably five metres tall. The wind in easterly parts of New South Wales experienced last week snapped most of them. Uh, I usually cut them back to ground level each winter anyway, but my problem is the base of the plant. It looks untidy and is pushing my fence over. Uh, I was wondering if I cut them back or if I've been cutting them back wrong or if there is something I could do to reduce the bulk of the surf- uh, on the surface of the soil. Um, 
All right, what do you think, guys? Plant the green goddess on top of them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or some more arrows. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I actually what? bought a tree dahlia in. There's, that's one of the, uh, oh, yeah, the other imp- plants that I bought in. You managed to flower it at your place Yeah, this yeah, year. It, flowers, it flowers most years. Yeah. Uh, like I mentioned earlier to you before we went out about uh, frosts at home aren't a big thing. Yeah. I, it's just something I don't understand why, but for some reason where are, I am. You're slightly on a yeah, rise, aren't you? It's so, but it's on, it's weird. I, I'm not sure exactly how it works. Mm. Uh, I used to go bike riding at night time and riding along between Romsey and Lancewood along the bike track at night time, mm. you'd go through these pockets of air and you could feel when the fr- where the frost was going to settle. Yeah. And my place just isn't one of those places. And okay. it's, so um, you get away with the tree. I get away with the tree does. The wind usually knocks them over though. Uh, so they flower, but they often flower while they're laying on the ground. Yeah, right. I think um, the bulk at the base of them would only be dealt with by removing them and replanting yeah, well, them. Well, that's what I was going to say. Mm. If, if they're starting to knock the fence over, and this is where you invite a whole herd of very strong young men or something around to help, mm-hmm. because digging out a tree dahlia is not the easiest it's thing not in the at world. All. <laughs> um, but it would be better to start off some fresh ones, maybe further away from the fence, uh, and then eradicate the originals. And as you say, Craig, plant something like Aromatallicum or something in amongst it uh, or green goddess lilies or something or another that will come up with foliage mm. Uh, mm. after you've cut the dahlia down so that you're not looking at the bottom. I have to say I don't notice the bottoms in the winter because I'm not looking in that direction. I, You know, as the winter comes on, I'm looking up at the tree dahlias in flower mm-hmm. and whether it's got a scruffy old trunk at the bottom doesn't really well, they For a few reasons, they're actually better as a backing Plant yeah. so they've got something to lean on so they don't get knocked over by the wind yeah. as much, uh, and, and to screen the base of them a little mm. bit as well. Mm. Um, but yeah, the, the if you want it somewhere else, uh, I tried to dig a one up, dig one up once, and it wasn't the width I had to dig to get it out of the ground; it was the depth. Yeah, they go down away. So I, you know, I had a hole a meter and a half deep, and I was still hitting tubers that were ten centimeters across down a metre and a half in yes. the ground. It's a bit frightening what's yeah. under there. Yeah, um, And they do take a while to build up enough energy to get that big. Yep. So, and that, But they do grow very easily from uh, cuttings as yep. well. So you do your cuttings a couple of years in advance. Mm. And once the new one gets up to size, then you can look at removing the old one from Back where it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that might be the way to go. Yeah, so I don't know whether that's been a great help, Erin, and I hope you're listening in this morning, uh, but there's a few thoughts on tree dahlias. Mm. Um, uh, I actually planted dahlia campanulata in the garden 18 months, two years ago. It's in its second flowering season this year, thinking I was going to use it as a stock plant by dividing. Uh, it has tubers that are about a foot long and they're on on sort of extensions of the tuber back to the main stem so that, in fact, the tubers are nearly a metre out from the <laughs> actual crown of the plant. Sounds terrifying. Yeah, yeah, and I've got no idea how I could ever pot something like that. So yeah. uh, this winter I'm going to put a whole pile of winter canes in and hopefully it strikes from canes like the other tree dahlias. Because a, a good way to propagate dahlias, mm. tuberous dahlias, is to, as they're shooting off, yeah, you take snip the cuttings, the cuttings mm. off. You might be able to do the same thing with the buds in, in uh, you know, earlier in the season yeah. as they're budding from the the main trunks. You might be able to do cuttings that might uh, grow a little well, bit Well, I'll find a way to deal with it because it is a beautiful day. I don't know whether either of you have grown campanulata, but no. it gets these beautiful sort of quite campanulate flowers, so they sort of hang like bells, mm. and it's almost pure white and it has a burgundy ring inside the flower. Okay. And it is just that sounds gorgeous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it grows 
probably not quite as tall as your classical Dahlia imperialis, uh, but still quite tall. Mine's got up to three and a half to four metres this year uh, in the garden, although one branch, the wind has slowly pushed it over. It hasn't broken, but it's sort of lent, and now it's sort of grown in a sort of yeah. weird serpentine form with the flowers sort of stuck almost at eye level because it went out that way to start with, out almost horizontal. Um, but it's gorgeous, and I think Dahlia campanulata is probably one of the best I've seen and it seems to start flowering comparatively early because I was surprised you had imperialis because I've had it in the garden for years this year's the first year it sent any flowers in probably seven or eight years because every time it gets up to flower bud stage in my garden I get frost yeah, frost yeah uh, mm. whereas excelsa with its purple rounded flowers and this campanulata both seem to start earlier in the year mm. and so I always get a crop of flowers off them. It sounds so, like there might be some hybridisation Well, yes, there. Yeah, yeah, there could be some <laughs> breeding needed. Um, you need a really tall umbrella, though, to protect them for the show. Yes. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so they're great fun. So they're really, really good plants. Um, all right. Now, we still haven't had anybody call in yet, so come on, you folk. Where are you? You've, it's all right. You can ring in from bed. We don't care where you are. Uh, remember, the phone number, if you're going to ring 3CR Gardening Program this morning, is 9419 and the text number, if you want to text us a question, is 04888 Well, whilst we're waiting for some people to come on board, uh, we might talk about a few plants because we've all bought in something to talk about this morning. We've already snuck one of yours in, oh, Greg. Oh, two, two of mine, I think. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. actually, we have. We've, we've basically covered yeah. you. Um, so we've talked about tree dahlias and we've talked about uh, your naughty little aroid that mm. takes off across the garden sometimes. <laughs> Maybe, Craig, what have you got on board there that you'd like to discuss with us this morning? It's nearly hydrangea pruning time. Well, you oh, can start yeah. now if you wanted, yeah. which is for me a major job, and Macrophylla nigra. Oh, yes, the black-stemmed The black-stemmed hydrangea. hydrangea is one that I really like. Mm. Um, and it's one that definitely has to be pruned because the black only occurs on the new wood. Yeah, and you've got to keep the colour. You've got to keep the old canes yeah, yeah. out, cut mm. out. Um, and it's also, for me, a lovely colour in the garden. Do, just, do you, so how hard do you cut back that one? Cause, uh, take out the old canes is you pretty just, much it. Yep, okay. It's not a big plant. Yeah. Yeah, yeah they it would grow to, what, 1.5 thereabouts? There's just there's always uh, – I had fun – I used to have fun pruning Heidi's in different ways and you get different results from them. You so do. the big macrophyllas, if you cut them, you don't want to do it too often, but if you cut them all back down, yeah. you'll still get flowers, but they'll be much sort of smaller and yeah. uh, and you won't get as many of them that year. And then the next year you'll have heaps of big flowers. Yeah. Mm. And then if you prune it more like a rose bush, you'll get fewer flowers, but they'll be massive. Mm -hmm. And then if you just deadhead it, you'll get lots of little tiny flowers covered over the top of it. Which is what I go for. Okay, right. I might add too, Craig, I don't know whether I've still got it. I hope I have. But I imported a hydrangea that was a hybrid of Nigra uh, from my friend Sean Hogan in Portland, Oregon. Mm. And he apparently bred it or selected it or whatever. He's called it rather, unfortunately, Oregon Pride. Mm. Um, And it has nearly as black a stems as Nigra, Mm. quite dark. I'd say dark brown, really, yep. uh, sort of a chestnutty brown. Um, but it has much more colour in the flowers. It's a much okay. richer shade of pink slash blue, depending on your soil yeah. type. Uh, if I've still got it up there somewhere, I should make sure you get a plant of it at Thank some you. stage. Because it's, uh, it's, it's quite handsome, and I keep meaning to sort of propagate it up in quantity, and I keep forgetting. Yeah, um, as you do. As you do, yeah. yeah. Well, when you've got a nursery full of plants, yeah. um, it's very easy to forget something. And it's always when somebody comes in six months too late and says, have you got a such and such? 
and you go, oh, I did. Yeah. Damn. <laughs> or, or they see something in the garden at the nursery. Yeah, yeah and you didn't propagate didn't get it. Didn't to it this year. Uh, yeah, well, that yeah. happens to me all the time. Now, there's a question that's come in via text for you, Craig. Mm. Um, and... Um, uh, somebody has bought a Hamamalus mollus from you, and they live in Mount Eliza, and it's doing well, but uh, the leaves have turned brown and crispy and still hanging on the plant. Is it anything to worry about? It's deciduous. Yeah, and they often hold their dead they leaves for a while. Yeah. For quite a while, yeah. yeah. So yeah. it's obviously nothing to worry about. No, I would no. say that it's probably not quite cold enough for them to drop yet. Yeah, yeah, and, mm. and once they get really wet and soggy and stuff, they'll start yeah. to fall off. Yeah. They do look a little ratty. And yeah. I have to say, when I've got them for sale in the nursery, if, if they're holding some dead leaves and they're about to flower, I go around and pluck them off because That's you right. can't see the flowers yeah. if you've got all those dead brown leaves hanging everywhere. But it's yeah. interesting that they're doing reasonably well with a hamamelis in Mandalay. Surprising. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm very impressed because I tend to discourage Melbourne suburban gardeners from buying them from me because I rarely see a decent one around mm-hmm. Melbourne. So that's, I think you're doing well. <laughs> so there you go. Yeah. All right. So we've talked about the hydrangea. Well, the last it. of the autumn colour is um, the dissectum called emerald, emerald lace. It's uh, Emerald Cascade. Emerald Cascade. I think it's Emerald Cascade, yeah. Which is a phenomenal grower. Oh, yeah. Throws out these enormous arms of growth. um, Don't plant it on either side of a set of steps. No, don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and and, and it's one of those ones which is going to take a few years to get to good shape. Yeah. Because it just keeps throwing out these great big long um, branching branches. But for autumn colour, it is fantastic and really late. Yeah. Yeah. And it's got a really nice, clean, rich green through the summer too, That's hasn't right. it? Yeah. It's well, a, a nice maple. I have to say I'm fond of the green ones. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the burgundy ones I always think are a little hard to place because they, if they're in too much shade, they don't keep their colour well and they tend to create a black hole anyway because right. you can't see them. Yeah. Um, so the green ones are often better garden plants. With the exception of orangeola. That is a nice thing. Yeah, mm. Orangeola of the darker ones is definitely my favourite and mm. nice habit too. Yeah. yeah, Orangeola drops quite sharply. It doesn't spread out too much, so yeah. it doesn't take up a huge amount of space. Actually, that does raise a question, or not a question but a comment. People will often ha- ask you how tall something grows, but they rarely ask you how <laughs> wide. wide it grows. <laughs> yes. yeah. And I think that's a far more important question. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they won't buy the big, tall, uh, upright, I don't know, uh, carpenters or whatever, mm. uh, but they'll buy the weeping elm. Yeah. And you think, well, you know, a weeping elm might not grow very tall because mm. it's a grafted standard and it'll come out and down, but it could take over a whole front yard. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and at eye level. Yeah. Well, there's some old, beautiful old ones up the mount too. They're, yeah. they're almost like a room inside. You, yeah. you part the curtains of the outer canopy of the elm and, and there's quite a spacious... Uh, uh, rotunda underneath. <laughs> yes, yes, giant cubby house, really. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, um, so Emerald Cascade, good vigorous cultivar. Good vigorous cultivar. Yeah. 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 They're, 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 and they're, they're kind of in a way few and far between. Yeah. 
with yeah. the dissectums. Yeah, and there's a lot of them out there. It's getting confusing. There's just too many weeping maples now. So uh, many. And, you know, I get them from a grower and he'll often throw in some of some new cultivar that I'm not even familiar with. Uh, Alan was the last one that I got that I hadn't heard of. Don't before. know what Alan does. It. Yeah, it's yeah, a green one, isn't it? It's a greenish one. It tends to get a little bit of copper in the leaves when it first comes out in the spring. Yeah. I got it for the first time last year. It grew well and... Um, I have to say its autumn colour was very good. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was a nice maple. Um, but, you know, there's just dozens of them out there And, and Lemon Lime Splash is another one that's yeah. turned up. I don't know what that yeah. does either. The other one that makes me laugh, and it's obviously an American cultivar, is Germain's Gyration. Oh, goodness me. <laughs> uh, and it's a green-leafed one, and yeah. it's very vigorous, but its stems tend to waft backwards Gyrate. and forwards, so yeah. hence the gyration. Yeah. It goes a really good tomato red, mm-hmm. and it's vigorous like an emerald cascade. Right. Um, so it's probably quite a good variety, but what... A, oh, well, actually, there's a worse one. There's one called... Um, oh, oh no, it'll come to me. I've forgotten what the name of the blasted thing is. Um, there's one that's been obviously named after somebody whose surname wasn't particularly romantic, and... Uh, <laughs> That's therein is another issue. If you name a plant, you you really should try and put a uh, Baldsmith is the name of it. Baldsmith. <laughs> Baldsmith. It's Goodness somebody's me. surname, yeah. I assume, because it's all one word. Yeah. Um, Initially, when I saw it written on a label, I thought, Bald Smith, why would you do that? Mm. <laughs> but, yes, apparently it's a surname, and it doesn't look like a bad maple, but, yeah, dreadful name. Mm. You know, it's never going to sell well, <laughs> unfortunately. Oh, dear. All right, so we might throw one of mine in now, yeah, just for the fun, huh? fun of it. Um, I have, by the way, given Liz, uh, who works with our social media with the program, images of the ones I bought in this morning, so I sent them to her yesterday, uh, being a very good boy that I am. Um, and so if you're interested in seeing what these plants look like if I don't describe them well enough, Go in and have a look at our Facebook and Instagram uh, accounts uh, and you will find images in there. Well, I assume Liz has put them up. She thanked me for sending them. I haven't checked they're in there, but they will be. If they're not there right now, they will be there very shortly. And the first one I brought along is a really interesting plant in the Campanula family from the Canary Islands, which is my favourite piece of horticultural tautology because it's called Canarina, which means it comes from the Canaries, and its species name is Canariensis. <laughs> so it's a Canary Islands plant that comes from the Canary Islands. <laughs> uh, and it's weird. It, it has tubers under it like a small dahlia. Mm-hmm. It dies down to them in the summer, or in the late spring, actually. Uh, and it's sort of a scandent scrambler. It, it just flops itself over other plants. And there's some of it growing in the Botanic Gardens in Melbourne. It's probably in flower now. And it's down near the Temple of the Winds where they've got that silver border area. Uh, And it's growing up and over a trailing cootamundra wattle, one of those prostrate, traily cootamundra wattles. And it's thrown itself over that. And the canarina is really interesting because it's winter growing, winter flowering, summer dormant. And I think plants that do that can be really useful. Uh, especially in Victoria. Especially Ooh, in Victoria. Um, having said that, it is frost tender, and so I have to keep it uh, in a fairly sheltered site if I'm going to keep it growing and flowering because otherwise it gets knocked down by the frost before it flowers. Um, and the flowers are beautiful sort of burnt orange bells, very like a campanula, and it can send out stems 
two to three metres long from the tuber. So quite quite extensive. Yeah, so if it flops across the top of other plants, it can yeah. go quite a way. Yeah. Um, and the bells hang down and they've got sort of dark veins through them. Uh, it's got a dark centre inside, which I'm assuming is uh, a guide thing for the pollinators to come in and purportedly has an edible fruit. Right. Now, mine's never fruited, so I've never been able to test this, mm. <laughs> uh, but apparently it has an edible fruit. And there's some really interesting things that come from some of those island floras. Uh, yeah, that's I'm it. fascinated by island floras. Evolutionary bottleneck and, yeah. and lots of pressures that you don't get on in bigger areas. And, yeah, you get little big little things and little big things yeah yes you do it's really weird um so there's only two species in the genus and the other species comes from somewhere like ethiopia it it almost looks like fritillarium perialis flower doesn't it it does sort of it's got that look of the bell of the fritillarium yeah 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 Yeah, so i think canarina's rather handsome and i'm just sad that the botanist didn't think to give it some sort of descriptive species name so that there wouldn't be a waste of a name really but that's the other thing with island floras they often get into this trap where they name everything canariensis because it comes from the canary islands because it's easy well it's easy to remember if you go there you know you only have to learn the genus name then yeah that's right exactly it's bound it well i (laughs) do that in Madagascar, people will say, what's that? And I'll say, oh, it's a such and such Madagascariensis probably. (laughs) Um, And and, and nine times out of ten, I'm probably right. right. (laughs) So Canarina canariensis, uh, I'd love to, I've seen images of, but I'd love to get my hands on the other species. It would be great fun to see that. It's a bit redder from the pictures I've seen. This is really orange, but the other species is much more red. Uh, Sounds nice. Yeah, yeah, I think it'd be well worthwhile getting the other one. If anybody's got some spare stock of the other species of Canarina, I'd love to have one. A friend of a client brought me in some seed from from this one, and it's germinated very easily. Yeah, it's easy enough to germinate if you can get fresh seed. Um, And... It's interesting because the plants I've still got, I got from somebody else who'd raised them from seed. I bought them from them. Mm. Uh, and I've had them for some years and they're just slowly selling over a period of time. But they're in the same 20 centimetre pots that I put them up into from the six inch pots that I got from him. Yep. And I just feed them each year and they just come up in the same pots. Uh, I top dress them occasionally. Uh, but they don't seem to need an awful lot of root space. Do you, so do you think a good pot plant? Yeah, I think Do you so. think they're not seeding because they're lacking the pollinator? Shouldn't, that they would have had? Or? Shouldn't be an issue. I think it's just that we're too cold and dank. Okay. Uh, that it just so doesn't seem... There's enough seem... pollinators around yeah. when it's flowering. And I just don't think it gets a chance to set any pods. Um, but uh, I think it's a fabulous plant, and it's out there a little bit, but not so much in the trade. So you mm. don't see it for sale terribly often. Uh, it should grow well for you up at where you are because you don't get an awful lot of frosts up there. That's so, right, yeah. Yeah, so it should do well for you. Uh, and it certainly grows well around Melbourne. I know a number of people who are growing it, and as I said, there's a good colony of it in the Botanic Gardens mm. in Melbourne. So probably worthwhile going for a walk into the Bot Gardens today and have a look have at a the, look the canarina yes. in flower because that area originally was landscaped as a Canary Island bed. Right. Uh, um, so there's quite a number of Canary Island things in there, and a lot of them are silvery-leafed, and it's sort of morphed, and it's now become sort of their silver border. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's plants from all over in there that have got silver foliage now. But the Canarina has held its own in there, and it's it's really pretty. <laughs> yeah. So there you go. Uh, where is everybody this morning? It's too early. Yeah, maybe it is. Although, yeah. 
It's eight o'clock now, folk. You should be awake and listening to us at least. It's sort of a little bit reminiscent of Bamaria and its habit by the sound of it. It is. It's got that same sort of habit. Yeah. Um, it's completely herbaceous, unlike some of the Bamarias, which don't seem to disappear at any yeah. for a, uh, at all uh, throughout the year. It seems that with some of them, they seem to just, that stem dies after it flowers, but there's always seems to Something be undercurrent. Yeah. yeah, whereas this disappears completely. The only Bamaria I'm growing that does exactly the same thing is Bamaria salsilla, which is a little cerisi red flowered mm-hmm. one. And it certainly comes up in the winter, flowers in the late winter, spring, and completely disappears for the summer. Okay. Uh, and it's a very fine, light little one. It's, it's very pretty, but very hard to sell because it never makes a decent looking plant in a pot. You've just got a couple of wispy yeah, bits. Same old story. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you can have some great plants in a nursery, but. When they don't present themselves in a pot, you've got to be a really good talker to convince people to plant some of those things. So it is just what it is, I guess. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, so, or, or have a, an example in the garden, but of course you can't grow everything in the garden. <laughs> well, especially if it comes to larger shrubs and trees. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can have quite a collection of bulbs and perennials and even climbers in a garden, but there's only so many trees and shrubs you can fit in yep. uh, to show off to people. And uh, yeah, it does make it difficult. But there you go. But um, I love, at the moment, the um, Euonymus compact, Alatus compactus is colouring up. It's ah, sort of, again one of the last ones. And it's a fantastic shrub. It's, it's tough too, isn't it's it? It's tough, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've got it growing in amongst beech roots. Yeah. Yeah, and um, it gets the red berries which yeah. it holds until it's dropped its leaves. Yeah. Yeah, yeah the Euonymuses are a great group of plants, actually, because they're mm-hmm. a big genus and there's an awful lot of diversity in there, from ground covers to evergreen shrubs to deciduous shrub, shrubs to small trees, and a lot of them have really pretty berries. Mm. Yeah, and good. a lot of them are good hedging plants. Yeah, I was going to say that one of the little um, ground covery, tendrilly ones, yeah. and I don't know which, which variety it is. I've got it in a, a bonsai garden, inverted yeah. commas, in commas. Um, and I've actually hedged it, so it's growing over a rock, but over the years it got a bit vigorous, so I had to start trimming it, yeah. and now it looks like a, a wave almost. Yeah. I've got it in this weird wave formation on the – so it's sort of like it's a wave breaking over the rock of yeah. this little plant, and the really, yeah, really good uh, – Surprisingly good hedging plant. So, yeah. you, and I'd never really thought about hedging in that fashion. Like, yeah. as Sometimes a ground cover hedge, happen, don't yeah, they? yeah, I do. yeah. <laughs> it worked yeah. really well. Actually, I've got one that I reckon is a fantastic plant. Uh, Euonymus fortunii radicans, which is a trailing one. It will climb. Yeah. So, I've got it growing at the foot of a big old messmate gum tree, and, mm-hmm. and some of it's worked its way up through the loose bark on the on the gum tree, and it's got up about two meters or so. But when it trails across the ground, it has a long, narrow, dark green, evergreen leaf with sort of a white vein down the centre of each leaf. I think that's leaf. the one. Yeah, it's the one. I, it's similar. It might have a slightly shorter leaf than the one. Could it's be very the growing, similar. Could be the growing form it's at because as it goes up the tree, its leaf shortens. Oh, okay. Uh, so yeah, it could yeah. be the fact that you're trimming it. That might be it. Yeah, it's yeah, making the leaf smaller. Same variety as that one. Um, yeah. But I use radicans in the garden at home where I've got bulbs because. It doesn't seem to mind having all the dead leaves fall all over it from the bulbs when they're going down. Mm. And it doesn't grow so dense if you just leave it alone as to swamp bulbs so they can come through it. And then when the bulbs die down, you've got this evergreen foliage creeping across the ground instead of a bear patch. Instead Mm. of a bear, which is always an advantage. Yeah, and so to find ground covers for over bulbs, I think, can be quite difficult Mm -hmm. at times. Can be. You know, either the bulbs swamp out the ground cover or the ground cover swamps out the bulbs. Mm -hmm. To find something that will survive well and still give you some greenery when your bulbs are down, I think is quite precious. Mm. So, And that's another euonymus. Yep.
Yeah, They're, I use geranium sanguinium for that purpose. Yeah, yeah, which that works would, quite well with bulbs. Yeah, yeah. yes, it wouldn't be too. But it's very vicious. late coming into growth. Yeah. Very, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good point. I might try some of that as well myself. Mm. All right. Remember, folks, we're here. We're ready to talk to you on nine four one nine zero one double five. So that's nine four one nine zero one double five. Just ring in and have a chat to us. Actually. Gardening talkback tends to be problem-driven. Ring in and tell us about your successes. Yes. Have a chat to us about something that's really doing really well in the garden instead of asking the uh, ubiquitous lemon tree question, uh, <laughs> which, would, which would be good. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, give us a ring. Now, Greg, you bought in a big leaf, and I, I did want to discuss yes. your big leaf. So, uh, now, this is, this is a plant that's changed names, I think, three yeah. times since yeah. I first remembered its name, which used to be, uh, now I can't remember it. Thapsia. <laughs> Thapsia decipiens. yeah. Um, and I sort of first came across this plant as a kid. It, it grew in the, the old garden I, I grew up in. It's one of those iconic Mount Macedon plants in a way because almost every big garden on Mount Macedon had, had its them. colony of yeah. this. And still does. Mm-hmm. And still does. Yeah, they're still up there because they self-seed themselves. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, so it's a, it's a monocarpic, yep. uh, almost, it looks like a palm tree, but I think it's in the carrot family. It is. In yep. fact, it's not just in the carrot family anymore, Greg. Oh, it's in the genus. It's in the genus. Oh, there you it's go. It's now Dorcas decipiens. What a dork. And, and it's, <laughs> Dorcas is the, is the genus in which the commercial carrot belongs. Okay. So yeah. much to my amazement, they've put this plant, which I always called tree angelica because it yes. sort of had an angelica look about it, yep. um, and it does. It gets this sort of palm tree-like trunk with rings around with, it where the leaves drop off. Yep. And, uh, and the leaves are, well, they're not palm tree-like, but they they sort of are in a way, I guess. Like the effect of them yeah, is palm tree Yeah, they tree-like. come out like yeah. a palm because you've got the trunk and then the leaves come out. Now, Dorcas, as it is now, is from Madeira, uh, so from the Azores. Uh, so it's another island flora thing, and it is... Monocarpic, which means that it grows, flowers once, and then dies. You can never be quite sure when it's going to flower. So they can do it quite short or they can get up very tall before mm. they do. I've seen them up to three metres before they're flowered. Yeah, the, the ones when I was a kid, they were about 14 to 16 years old. Yeah. And they would have been at least three, yeah. oh, just over and three I metres. I think the biggest ones I ever saw, and I don't know whether they're still there, but there was a batch of them up at uh, Haskham, one of the big gardens, mm. right up the top of Mount Macedon, and they were really tall. And I had this theory, and I'm not sure whether it could be true or not, that the higher the altitude you're growing it at, the longer it takes to mature to flowering size, so therefore you get really big ones. Mm. And the lower down you are, the shorter they often flower. But Which I, I think there's something in that because could be. the ones I have growing in Romsey now only get to maybe a metre and a half at most. Yeah. And they usually flower within seven years. Yeah. Yeah. So I think um, it could be an altitudinal mm. thing. But it's a really interesting plant. In actual fact, it does lead on to something if people are interested in seeing more about it uh matthew and i who do the youtube um channel we did do a video on monocarps we did a video on about three or four different plants that grow flower and die uh and talked about them um so if you want i've I've bought another one in too which i think you talked about which was the fecrea oh yes and yeah i bought in this scraggly looking stick that doesn't look right you don't have to tell people it's a scraggly looking stick they can't see it but the (laughs) i I was just sort of looking at there's a uh, one of the gardens i work in has two of them that flowered this year yeah and from the moment they start spending sending their big asparagus flowering spikes up in uh, it's, it's probably spring yeah. i guess isn't it when yeah. they first start to form their flower buds 
And these things just rocket up to what five meters, maybe easily, easily yeah, five meters, yeah. and, mm. and it does it almost overnight. I yeah. mean, once they really start to go, they just go. And then you get this these beautiful flowers on it for a long time. Yeah. And then even now, you've still got this beautiful. It looks like a green fountain with little baubles hanging on yeah. it, off it. Because as you, I as reckon, you know, it'd make a Christmas tree. Yeah, <laughs> and, and a lot of the seed pods don't actually turn into seed pods; they turn into little bulbs. Yeah. So, so then you yes, can go and pick all these little bulbs off the off the. I uh, might add, the, don't plant them all; you'll regret it. I, I <laughs> did do that once, and I've still got them in pots from my old nursery. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, you'll never sell them. Now we've got our first call come in, so let's go and see if we can bring on board. Martin from Churnside Park. Are you there, Martin? Martin? Are you there, Martin? Uh-oh. What's going on here? I'll try again. Martin. Okay. Are you, ah, Martin, are you there? Hello? Hello? Hello, Martin. Yeah, hi. How are you doing? Oh, we're good, thank you. Uh, you're on air now, Martin, so ask your question. Thank you. Um, I'm a keen listener over all the years. Thank you. Wonderful show. Good. Um, I'm typically an English-type Plant gardener roses are my favourite. Mm-hmm. I've just moved February out to Churnside Park and inherited a garden full of natives. Mm-hmm. So before I automatically went out and probably pulled them all out and put the roses back in again. <laughs> oh dear, yes, you, you've yeah, just yeah. offended half of our listeners, Martin. <laughs> uh, well, hang on, well, hang on. <clears throat> I'm going to redeem myself. I'm oh, good. Yeah, um, I went out to Karanga Native Nursery at Mount Evelyn, just up the road from me, mm-hmm. and had a look, and I was just stunned at the amount of variety um, on offer compared to when I looked at natives last time, which had been 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah, colors, yeah. The kangaroo paw colours are amazing. Um, yeah, everything's moved was, on. Yeah, that's well, that was my sort of question was, can you talk to us about what's, what's going on there with natives and how, the, how have they moved on? Looks like a lot of money might have been put into grafting. Why are we grafting um, flowering gum trees now that have been grafted? What are they being grafted onto? And it looks like a whole, yeah, the whole thing's moved on. Can you talk to us about... What's happening there in, in natives and development of it? Well, what's actually happening in natives, Martin, is the fact that we've actually started selecting them for garden plants. Yeah. When the first hit of native plant fever hit back in the 1960s, and some of us are old enough to remember it, um, they were taking unselected native plants out of the bush, growing them, selling them, telling everybody you didn't have to look after them, you didn't have to prune them, you didn't have to do anything to them, and it fell apart in a big mess because yeah. they weren't selected, were they? And, and it's lingered. Yeah. The no ha- maintenance thing has lingered, yeah. and it's nonsense. Yeah, of course it's nonsense. Uh, yeah. You know, they will survive out in the bush, but when you walk around the bush and you look at an individual plant, it's often not a particularly attractive plant, you wouldn't want to necessarily immediately translate mm. that back into your garden because mm. they grow leggy and, you know, that's part of their nature. If you want them to be good garden plants, you've got to manage them. Yeah, but also there's, 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 there's particular species that come, you know, from one valley in Western Australia that have a very specific conditions that they require and they're now taking that and grafting it onto something from Victoria, yeah. which means it's going to grow in your garden. Rather than die <laughs> yeah, immediately of some yeah. disease. Yeah. Actually, that reminds me. I was in a garden only uh, earlier in the autumn uh, down on the basalt plains out of Sunbury, uh, and this person had hakea um, Victoria growing in their garden, which is one of the Western Australian hakeas with the mm. most amazing coral like formation. And it was thriving, so I'm assuming it was a grafted would plant. It would have to be grafted. And it'd have to be because yeah. they come from the sand belt. So yeah. how it was growing on the basalt plains mm. otherwise, I can't imagine. And, and it was looking beautiful. The eucalypts are grafted for colour, mm. I think, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. I think they, I don't think they use a dwarfing under stock like you could yeah. get uh, um, 
uh, fruit trees and things on. That's right. Uh, but some of the selections are also smaller growing as well. So oh, some fantastic yeah. small ones. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So right. yeah, our native plants are actually starting to mature as garden plants. They're no longer just these wild things that we're bringing in from the bush. They're selecting good compact forms and different colours and uh, all sorts of different things for their usefulness in gardens. And Mm. so they have, in fact, uh, I think now matured to the extent where, you know, you can have a really good native garden, whereas I I think back in the 60s it was almost impossible to have a really good native garden, unfortunately. Yeah, Uh, they're a lot of work. Mm. My, My friend Shirley Khan, who was a fanatical native gardener, was constantly pulling things out and replanting them as as soon as they considered sort of grew to what she considered was past their use by it'd be out and she'd put something else mm. in um and the the pruning i think is relentless yeah yeah, yeah. and a lot of them do respond really well because absolutely they're yeah. designed to have epicorns and, yeah. <laughs> and things to reshoot yeah. from so um, and Cheryl had a, a big collection of epacris and, and she used to cut them right back to the ground after yeah. they'd flowered each year yeah. I often think too that the uh, gum trees can be used a little bit differently to what we think they can be by coppicing them a little mm-hmm. bit too, because the mm-hmm. younger foliage on some of the gums is absolutely yeah. stunning. Well, so they do that in, in, in Europe a lot. Yeah, and grow mm. them for their juvenile foliage because they often have to because they die in the yes. colder <laughs> weathers. But um, but yeah, the result is this beautiful. The some of the juvenile foliage on gum trees mm. is absolutely stunning. Yeah. yeah. So how's so what, that helping? It does, thank you. Yeah, um, just, yeah. Look at that selection, Karanga was just, uh, I was just gobsmacked by the variety. Yeah, yeah. and it's, it's also like... how you use the Martin. I mean, uh, back in the '60s, I used to call it the um, Morse Code Garden because what they'd do is they'd plonk in a sleeper, then three rocks, then a sleeper, then three rocks, <laughs> cover everything with bush, bush mulch, yeah. and and call it a garden. And it really wasn't that exciting as a garden th- sort of style. Yeah, with Melaleuca stifloides. Yeah, yeah, it was just <laughs> dreadful. But anyhow, um, yes, we've matured a lot. So the, in particular, then, I noticed some flowering gums, and they were grafted. Yeah. What are they, what are they grafting them onto? Good question. I've no idea. No idea. No. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a question we should have had AB in here for yeah. or somebody like that to, to answer that one. When you say flowering gums, they were phycofolia. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, they're grafting them, and I'm not quite sure they're what they're probably onto phycofolia. Well, they're probably... but just for colour form. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So yeah. So normally you graft like onto like as closely as possible yeah. because you always get a far better, more compatible graft if you do. So it'll be something quite closely related, but I'm not sure to be honest. Yeah. And something okay. easy to propagate mm. and yeah. grow on. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Don't worry. Thank you. So anyways, made me think twice after going out there. Yeah, well, that's good. You know, maybe reassess what you've already you got in your garden. Start and... a native fungi collection too. Oh in God, there we go. Craig. <laughs> Greg's back on his fungi again. Oh, <laughs> all right. Well, I hope that's helped, Martin. It does. Thank you very much. All right. Enjoy okay. the rest uh, of your day. Bye. What Thank amazes you. me about natives is that people will have a garden bed and they will have in it plants from all four corners of the earth, and then say that you can't mix natives and exotics. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And often there's like. Uh, you know, there's a lot more distance and and uh, uh, variety 
from something from Western Australia to here as there is from here to New Zealand. That's right. <laughs> yeah. 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 And re- really, when you think about it, I think it's just a perception. I mean, you go up to what was the Rhododendron Gardens or is now the Mount Dandenong Botanic Gardens, mm-hmm. and they're growing their rhododendrons, their camellias, their maples, their azaleas and all that sort of thing, uh, often under the canopy of the huge eucalypts and blackwoods. That's right. Yeah. And nobody goes in there and says, oh, this is odd. They've yeah. got natives mixed with exotics. And the Illyria, the tree daisies, yeah. look at home perfectly with rhododendrons because yeah. they've got mm-hmm. the same trunks. Yeah. Mm. They've got similar leaves but with the white underside. And so I, there's a couple of uh, tree, the Illyrias up in Mount Macedon that are as big as the biggest 170-year-old rhododendrons up there. Yeah, mm. um, yeah exactly. Absolutely stunning big All things. All right, now I've got a text here that we should quickly read. Um, it's from Linda. Uh, we're loving our Macedon oak bought a few years ago from Stephen and doing well in our sand at Nagambi. Um, yeah, the Macedon oak, for those who don't know, is a selected hybrid oak that comes comparatively true to seed um, that was uh, selected by George Firth who was, I think, either the head propagator or in charge of the old state forestry nursery in Macedon, back sort of between the wars and things. Um, And he selected it. It was called Quercus Firthii for obvious reasons. His name was George Firth. Um, And it's a combination of one of the evergreen oaks and the pin oak. And we're not quite sure what the other other parent was. Um, So it tends to hold its leaves until almost the end of the winter and then sheds and drops. And the most famous specimens of the Macedon oak are actually growing down at Cruden Farm. And if anybody's going in to look at Cruden Farm at some stage, and it's open regularly these days since Dame Elizabeth passed away, um, there's two specimens and one particular one in front of the house of Macedon oak that Dame Elizabeth planted as a young bride when she first moved into Cruden Farm. And before she passed away, they were put on the National Tree Register as important trees of their type. Now, not many people can live long enough to have a tree they put in end up on the National <laughs> Tree Register. So, And they are stunningly beautiful trees. It's, it's a big canopied oak with slightly pendulous side branches. It's very elegant. Um, it's not particularly well loved by some of the gardeners in the Mount Macedon Gardens because they get all their autumn clean-up done and yes. then the Macedon oak starts yeah, There's, there's one, in the, one of the gardens I, I work in and that. it does exactly that. Everything else has dropped and it doesn't always drop its leaves at once either, yeah. so it'll... It'll drop a few today just to mess everything up. Yeah. And then once you clean that up, we'll drop a few more. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes, it's, it's a bit of a naughty oak, I have to say, but it is um, it is a beautiful tree and I grow a few of them every year because it's it's probably the only tree that we can sort of take claim with uh, mm. at Macedon. I mean, mm-hmm. we've got lots of native trees, but I don't think we've got any particular tree that's endemic to Mount Macedon uh, as such. Uh, so we haven't got a native that we can sort of claim because no. they all grow elsewhere. As well, I've been, I've, I've actually, a, a project I'm think, thinking of starting is is trying to find if there are any endemic Mount Macedon. Yeah. And the only place I can think of where they might be endemic is up on Camel's Hump, which is a weird uh, volcanic rock. Yeah. And it's been there for six million years. So there's yeah. a, maybe a little bit of a chance that something, something has evolved slightly differently and is growing in the cracks of the rock now, or something. You, you say that, though, but in fact, genetically, our snow gums at the top of Mount Macedon are purportedly different from yes, the other snow gums are. that grow yeah, elsewhere can't. because it's been isolated for a long time. And our Mount Nash... Um, are also thought to be genetically different from the other mountain ash around because, Mm. again, they're quite well isolated. And a lot of the mountain ash 
didn't die after the Ash Wednesday bushfires. Right, which is the norm for mountain ash. Yeah, mountain ash normally dies. And, of course, the forestry people came in and started clearing mountain ash straight after the fire. Uh, And, in fact, the bits they didn't clear often regrew again. Right. Um, So the trees actually refoliaged and and kept going. Uh, So if they'd been a little slower moving in to take the wood, Mm. um, a lot of our bigger mountain ash might have actually made it And they weren't. There's not actually a lot of mountain ash up there either. No, it's it's mainly alpine ash. Because they took most of it out. In, oh, it's mainly um, a bleaker yeah. in, in most of the forest. But, yeah, they took most of that out when they logged in the 1850s, unfortunately. Yeah. So there's hardly any of the – and they only get up to about 800 metres or so. Once yeah. you get over that, they uh, peter out a little bit or yeah. look unhealthy. <laughs> yeah, and, of course, we, we tend to muck things up a bit because we do have alpine ash up there as well. Mm. And uh, I remember there was a plantation of alpine ash planted up along the road to the Memorial Cross up on the left-hand side, not far from below the cross. Mm-hmm. And I found out years later after they'd planted, I thought, oh, that's good. They put in some alpine ash, but it wasn't local seed. Right. So they'd bought in seed from somewhere else. Yeah. And so, if anything, they've probably mucked up the local gene pool. Uh, so, there is a nice big crop of it up at Lion's Head Road, up the other end of the range. Uh, yeah. There's a huge, big forest of them up there. Yeah. And it is a beautiful forest, too. It's just, uh, it's open woodland forest. They yeah. tend, it's quite dark, but um, you get bracken and ferns and things underneath, and mm. then straight up to the canopy of the main uh, – uh, that's delegatensis, I think, is yes, that the eucalyptus, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I struggle to tell the difference between some of them, I have to say. Yes, they are it's, pretty hard. It's what it is. <laughs> now, I think we had a uh... – oh, somebody's angry at me because I said some time ago uh, that ivy won't kill an established tree, and it won't. Ivy can strangle young trees, mm. but if you go into the English woodlands, uh, full of uh, beech and and big trees, they're nearly all shrouded in ivy on mm-hmm. the trunks. Uh, the only damage ivy can do to an established tree is if it gets out onto the um, the limbs and creates extra weight, and sometimes the limbs can't brings the branches yeah, down. Yeah, brings the branches down. Uh, so unless it covers the canopy of the tree, which it rarely does, mm. um, I mean, there's big old trees on Mount Macedon that have had ivy growing up them for the last mm. eighty or a hundred years. The tree's still alive. The ivy's still alive. The ivy including must be enormous. Oh yeah, mm. they can get huge, yeah. but it climbs up the tree, and unless it tree is still trying to um, uh, expand its trunk girth, Mm. Um, once it gets to a certain size, uh, the trunk girth only grows very minimally, um, and the ivy doesn't do any harm. Once you get to a certain size, too, the ivy's not going to go around the trunk. No, it tends to go straight up. Yeah, Yeah, so Mm. it doesn't sort of girdle all the way around. Mm. So I still stand by that comment. I mean, you know, lots of people say, oh, you've got to take ivy down off trees, and I don't recommend leaving it on trees. My point was, though, that it doesn't kill the tree. Mm. And that, having said that, it's probably not that good for them. Well, probably not. But having said that, in a, in its wild state, in the, in the appropriate countries where mm. it lives, it looks gorgeous growing up trees, mm-hmm. and it is an early nectar source for bees. Um, in fact, bees love ivy when it's mm-hmm. in flower. Um, so, in its native habitat, it seems to grow perfectly well. And like all climbers, their whole point in life is to get up onto trees. Mm. I mean, there's no fences or sheds or pergolas in the wild. Mm. Um, so they grow up other plants. And if you go up to the Dandenongs, you'll often see 
clematis um, growing up through trees up there, the native one, Aristata. Mm -hmm. uh, it's fine when it's growing up a big tree, but if it goes up a small sapling, it gets heavy and it pulls the tree over and kills it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, but that's part of what naturally happens in the wild. Mm. So it's, you know, uh, not every plant is going to succeed in the wild. Uh, and in fact, you do have to have an attrition rate. Some things have got to die. Uh, and so that clematis uh, will kill young eucalyptus. Yeah, seeds. so it's almost... A similar role as a parasite would make yeah. in an ecology where, you know, it's a... Yeah, well, a, they turn a, them a into compost. Stress. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, yeah, so I still stick by my... my um, the fact that ivy will not kill a big old tree unless it gets too heavy for some of the branches and it pulls them out of the tree. But it's not then going to kill the tree. It's just going to pull down some branches. Mm. They can strangle young trees, though. Uh, and it's certainly not something I'm suggesting people do. I just want people to realise that it's a bit of a furphy saying that ivy kills trees. Yeah. Um, so you need to be aware of it's that. It's a good plan to get rid of. Yes, yeah, it's not <laughs> fun, is it? No. <laughs> oh, now, Lois from Mitcham. Apparently you phoned in last week, uh, but your question wasn't answered because apparently we ran out of time. Uh, if you're listening to us this week and you'd still like to have a chat about whatever the topic was that you were talking about or wanted to talk about last week, why not give us a call and we'd be really happy to have a chat to you about whatever it was. So Lois of Mitcham, um, give us a ring and, uh, and we'll have a talk to you about what your question was. So please come on board. You know, um, yesterday I was sitting down watching uh, YouTube videos on regenerative farming, which is, you know, something that interests me yeah. enormously. And I was watching an American one, and the guy used this term chop and drop, yeah. which made my heart sing. <laughs> <laughs> it's something that I do all yeah, the time I was in my say, that's garden. What I do as well. <laughs> roughly chop things up and chuck them down on the ground. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and and when when the time comes to put some wood chip on top of them it all looks very neat. Yeah. Mm. Prior to that it's a shocking mess. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. But it all goes back into the ground. Yeah. And, which is exactly what we should be doing. Yeah. Mm. Everything that comes there out, be of any your waste garden, out of the garden. Yeah. No, no. Very little. No, very well, little. And I, the worst of that is the grass clippings like Feeding a lawn, yeah. then cutting it, and, and then throwing the away the, the you basically just throw the fertilizer. Away well, just use a mulching mower. Yeah, but there's yeah. like to remove grass from a lawn and take no, it no, away no, and no, then no. feed it again. It yeah. just it's yeah. bizarre. Now, dare I advertise bizarre. my YouTube channel again? Because we did do a video on how I self-sustain my own garden. Yep, and so people might find some use in there because I've taken it in slightly different ways in some. Some ways, because we have our own worm composting toilet system, mm -hmm. so there's no grey water or black water that leaves our property. Uh, I certainly don't have any organic material that leaves the property. Uh, it gets dealt with in one way or another. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, weeds that you couldn't put into your compost, for instance, sake, so perhaps onion weed bulbs or oxalis weedy bulbs or, or whatever, they mm -hmm. go down the toilet system and the worms deal with those. Other things go in the compost or through the shredder and then become wood chips mm. that go back onto the Everything's garden. Everything's a resource. Everything Everything's is a resource. A resource. You know, right. The ash out of my open fire yeah. goes back into the garden. Yep. Uh, I quite literally am a what I call a net green waste importer. Yeah. Uh, nothing leaves the place. Yeah. So mm. it can be done. And, and, and the concept of a tidy garden is something which needs to be eradicated. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> because because the garden is about plant health. Yeah, it's yeah. it about having growing beautiful plants, and the two are kind of in a way incompatible. Mm. Mm. 
Because if you have a neat soil surface, then you don't have enough organic matter. Yeah, to mm. grow those plants with. That's right. Mm. Yeah. And nature doesn't like vacuums. Like yeah. You're, gonna, yeah. you're creating more work for yourself. Well, of course you are. Yeah. If you don't have something. And, and that's where the Arasarum vulgare can come, come in, is if you plant a weed that you like... It's it better than having it, weeds you that you don't, don't like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that makes so sense. So if you've got yeah. a yeah, forget-me-nots are another good one where they oh, can be a problem. they're great in the compost. They're, they are. They're great yeah. in the compost. They're yeah. good for soil where they are. Yeah. Um, and they're easy to pull out if you need to pull them out. Mm. Um, that geranium Robertsoni arm's another one that it just yeah, fills just every gap. Thug, but yeah, it fills every yeah. gap and yeah. it just pull it out if you, it's yeah. com- it, you right, can wipe better, it off the ground. We better go. We've got a call coming in. So let's see if we can bring up Anne. Are you there, What's happened here? Don't know what's going on. Let's try again. Anne, are you there? Hello, Anne. Well, I don't know what's happening there. I'll try once more. Anne, are you there? No, we've lost Anne. All right, sorry about that. Uh, Can't be helped. These things happen. Uh, Try again, Anne, if you can. Uh, We'd love to have a chat to you if you want to, because I think your question was actually much on the same line. the question came up, so we might be able to answer it anyway, um, yeah. in that she's got a big old prunus tree she wants to take down and she wants to know if she has it chipped up, can she use it around the garden? There's no question. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. yeah, of course you can. Yes, mm. yes, yes. Yeah, well, yeah. you know, anything that comes down in our garden, as I said, it doesn't yeah. get wasted. It either yeah. becomes kindling, firewood, ash for the garden, yeah. through the treader. Uh, yeah. yeah, food for fungus. Yes, exactly, yeah. yes. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I was looking at your fungi books. And, yeah, yeah. you know, if, if you do the chop and drop, and then you scrape the soil, the the mulch away. You see the white mycelium, mycelium running through, there. through it so quickly too. So it's, quickly, yeah. yeah. It's same with the autumn leaves, like rake, yeah, constantly right. raking up autumn leaves, yeah. or, or moving around autumn leaves. You're better off sort of leaving them there and helping them decompose, like yeah. feeding the organisms that break yeah. those things down, yeah. or helping them along. Yeah. And that will deal with all that organic matter, and then you'll have better soil at the end of it, which in turn will make your ha- plants healthier and you'll have soil. a nice garden. Yeah, yeah. yeah so the, the, the wood, the, the wood ash, Stephen. I've I've got a Murnong patch going in my garden now. Mm. Yeah, um, and they love wood ash. Well, there yeah, you go. The, the, yeah. Well, so, so do irises too. The yeah. bearded irises love a bit of wood ash around them because mm. it's got potash in it. Yeah. And they and and it's also tends to be slightly alkaline, which is yeah. what irises actually quite like. Yeah. But all those products. I would only say about them that um, in my own garden, if it's something like wood ash or the coffee grinds that I bring home from the, from the local yep. cafe, all mm-hmm. those things, I use them like a condiment, not, not like an ingredient. Mm-hmm. So I sprinkle them everywhere mm. uh, because if you put thick layers of some of those really fine materials down, you can often create this sort of impervious layer on the surface and mm. then the moisture can't get through. Mm. Um, so I sprinkle. And in mm. fact, I use the, I use the coffee grounds uh, when I bring them home and I throw them over the top of the autumn leaves that have dropped down and they help hold them in place yep. so that if we get a storm, they're not blowing in, mm. into the neighbour's place or, or onto the And nice too. And it does. It smells quite good. <laughs> I don't need to drink as much coffee because I'm getting the smell. Um, and so it all works for me. Yeah. And so... Um, and a com- compost heaps are another way to deal with that stuff too. If you... Yeah, you, you can... If you don't want to throw the, some of this stuff straight out into the garden, yeah. 
you can run it through a compost heap right. in a like that keeps it a little bit more compact yeah. and, and organized if that's what you're into yeah um i have to say i'm not i'm into if i can do it in one fell swoop i'll do it and in never that have range. to touch it again yeah, yeah that's yeah. right so if i throw the coffee grinds around it seems to me sensible instead of putting them in the compost to then throw them around yeah, later exactly yeah you know so although i use my compost heaps Madly, yeah. I mean, I also bring home the spent green waste from our local little supermarket. Okay. I call in there every night and I bring home boxes of, of half-rotting vegetables and lettuce leaves and, you know, and those dreadful plastic containers of pre-made salads and things that they didn't sell and, yeah. you know, all that sort of stuff. And I bring it home and probably over half of it goes straight into the chook shed yeah. so the chickens have all that stuff. Stuff that they're not going to eat goes into the compost heap. Uh, things that won't go into the compost heap, like potatoes, they go down into my um, worm type, worm <laughs> composting toilet system. Yeah. So the worms deal with those because if you throw them in the compost, you end up with a bloody crop of mm. potatoes coming <laughs> up in the, in the compost. And, um, um, and then I just... Uh, sort the different plastics and things that come into my place and put them in the appropriate bins and you know so I sort it all out uh, and I think I'm doing a good thing for the environment because our local supermarket is not putting green waste out into Mm. into landfill uh, because it's coming home to fill my land instead yeah and there's nothing more satisfying if you have a compost heap than to jam a stick into it to aerate it in the middle of winter and you pull the stick out, and it looks like a train letting off its steam whistle. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it's just this spurt of steam comes out of the uh, – yeah, and it's, it's about 70 degrees or something in there because you know it's killing all the things that you don't want. And, um, yeah, it makes beautiful soil too, the compost heaps. But yeah, like absolutely. you say, if you can just throw it out on the garden bed and forget do about it, let's do that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Don't create work for yourself. Uh, yeah. now it amazes me the complexity that people create around compost. Mm. Oh, yeah, they make it so complex. So complex, and it's really just, you know, decomposing vegetation. Mm. Yeah, with maybe some dead chooks. The debate continues, boys. Uh, Clematis uh, aristata blankets and kills so many native shrubs and saplings in the bushland. Uh, Ivy does cause the demise of some fair sized gum trees in bushland. Uh, Any bushwalker that has the habit of, uh, into the habitat of ivy and confirm what shooting damage it does uh come bushwalkers with me and i'll prove the case uh rose of mitchum uh love the show uh i put grounds in my autumn leaves too so there you go so everybody's doing that as well look i'm i have to say i'm not encouraging people to keep ivy all i am saying is that ivy on an established tree does not kill the tree. That's all I'm saying. Mm. Uh, yes, pull it out of the bush. We don't need it. And it's right. Uh, Clematis aristata kills probably as many things in the bush as what the ivy does. Mm. But it's a natural process and it's mm. doing That's it. ecology. Yeah, yeah, it's part of the mm. ecology. So that's fine. So I'm not encouraging people to keep ivy. I'm just saying that the, the, um, the sort of myth of them killing large trees uh, is exactly that. It's a bit of a myth. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, as I said, they can strangle small trees and they can get too heavy for small trees just like the clematis can. Uh, but on a big old tree, I've seen it 
multitudes of times, both in garden settings with exotic trees and out in the bush with native trees, because ivy's almost ubiquitous up at Mount Macedon, like holly and sycamores mm-hmm. are. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's plenty of it growing there, and some of it's been there for decades and decades and decades, probably over 100 years, uh, growing up big old trees, and the trees are still functioning perfectly well. So that was my only point I was making. Uh, yes, it can cause all sorts of ecological damage, but it won't kill an old tree. Mm. And that and was the, my the worst thing it's doing is the displacement of the other native species that yeah. would be growing around the tree yeah. rather than the actual or, or on the ground. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Spreading across yeah. the ground. Yeah. So yes, it's a pest, yeah. and we shouldn't be encouraging it. In fact, we should be discouraging it. Yeah. But I just wanted to. You know, have my say about the myth of old trees being killed mm. by ivy because it's just not normally the case. And don't chop and drop it. No, yeah, not, <laughs> yeah. Not yeah. If you chop and drop that, you might regret it <laughs> because right. it'll be there forever. <laughs> yeah. Oh dear. So there you go. So we started a little bit of a, a an ivy debate here this morning. Um, That's good. Yeah. Well, why not? Indeed. I yeah. mean, you know, gardening is as much an art as it is a science and some people do things that you think are really weird or inappropriate or whatever and they seem to manage you can tell people all the right things to do and somebody will go away and do the wrong thing and it works Um, Mm -hmm. in fact I've got a classic example of that many years ago and fairly elderly lady who was the mother of a friend of mine came into my nursery and saw a soft pink lapageria in flower and uh, decided she wanted it and she lived in uh, Camberwell and so I went through the processes of aspect, soil type, watering, watching out for slugs and snails, watching out for red spider mite, um, all the things that Lapageria, the Chilean bellflower could or probably will suffer from and so I gave her all this information and she went home with the Lapageria and I could see she wasn't really paying a great deal of attention so I thought oh that's the end of that Lapageria mm-hmm. um, anyhow Two years later, maybe even longer, I bumped into her daughter somewhere and she said, oh, come home and uh, have a, a Christmas drink with us um, and you'll be able to see mum's plant. And I went, oh, really? And so anyhow, so I did. I went and had Christmas drinks with her and here's mum's lapageria growing in a water well pot with a wire tripod standing on the concrete next to the swimming pool in full sun (laughs) and flowering its damn head off and looking perfectly happy. Mm. Uh, I didn't even have the heart to tell her she'd done all the wrong things because if she changed what she was doing, she probably would have killed it. Mm. Uh, But she did everything exactly opposite to what I would have suggested she did and the Lapageria grew and flourished and flowered. I don't know whether it's still alive. That was some years ago. Um, But it had been there two or three years and was flowering and looking rudely healthy. And yeah. so you you can never be sure about what's going to happen in gardening. No, never. Mm. Yeah. yeah, so we, we can always I get surprised. I managed to grow a maple from a cutting ones. A um, Japanese maple. A, a Japanese maple. Yeah. And it's like, that shouldn't be a thing, should it? Well, <laughs> they, I know they air layer. Yeah. yeah. So why not? Why not? Yeah. 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 But it just never seemed, you like you say, you, you, if you ask someone, should you, can you grow Japanese maples from cuttings, You'd probably say probably not. Yeah. Probably My not response would be it. you'll get a really low strike rate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And you actually with Japanese maples, there are some cultivars that seem to strike from cuttings. So okay. you've got to select your maple because uh, I know there was somebody who was growing one of the dissectums, one of the mm. weeping maples, mm. from cuttings. Right. And I've actually got a plant in the garden that's sort of grown basically as a ground cover because mm-hmm. of course it didn't have a understock mm. under it yep. to lift it up. Um, that was a cutting grown 
acepel martin yeah, dissector. Right. There you go. Mm. And I think it was just straight atropurpureum, the old, the oldest of the purple forms around. Mm. And it's made a very handsome ground cover, mm. and it's on its own roots. Yeah, there you mm. go. So there you go. So oh. The problem with the grafting is that they always go for straight trunks. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's not, a thing it? these days. You know, I had some people coming in the other day and they were looking at trees and they they were concerned that one of them wasn't healthy because it had some curves in the trunk. Mm. Well, there's an old, it's probably the red dissectum mm. as well, at, at Forest Glade, that whether it's on its own roots or whether it was a low graft, yeah. mm. it's got a trunk that weaves and crosses it, it was it's uh it wasn't on a straight trunk yeah and it's quite old it's probably 60 years old or something mm-hmm. um and it makes it look so much more interesting so yeah. much more interesting that it's yeah. got this weavy yeah. wonky yeah i would uh, always select trunk. the one with multiple trunks or a, right. a kink in the trunk or yeah. whatever i don't yeah. want something that looks like a broomstick with a mop on the top yeah mm. you know, so that's, that's the way i would go but the rest of the world does mm. oh yeah yeah look i spent ages with a guy who used to come in regularly to the nursery who was basically planting his own private arboretum yeah and every tree he bought had to be dead straight mm-hmm. and i said you're going to end up with the bright may matchstick farm by the time you finish why not buy one with double trunks <laughs> or one with a kink in the trunk yep. or, you know, uh, why not plant one on an angle so that it doesn't, in fact, grow dead straight? Yeah. I mean, you need to mix things up a bit, but I think he was so retentive about this that there was no way he was going to go down that path. Uh, so <laughs> I'm assuming his whole garden was full of these sort of power poles. Mm. Yep. So sadly. He probably, he probably had cockatoos, though, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, that will do something about it as well. Um, we've had a uh, message come in from Bonnie Marie, uh, now, I did know about this, and I probably should have said something about it. Um, uh, a PGA-bred plant has received a silver medal at Chelsea uh, uh, for, in their Plant of the Year award, and it's a, an Ameria, um, a sea thrift um, called Dreamland that was bred here in Australia that has picked up a, a silver award in Chelsea. So that's, that's good. If our bread is picking yeah. up an award somewhere else, I might add it's, you know, it's obviously not an Australian native plant that they're mm-hmm. bred, uh, but the sea thrifts or amirias are pretty little clumping plants with clusters of pink flowers on the top. I have seen images of the one that won the award, and it does look to be quite floriferous yep. uh, and nice and compact, if that's your thing. I do have to say sometimes we breed for compactness to a ridiculous level. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't need everything to be tiny and and tight, Um, but it looks like a nice plant. So, yes, so there you go. That's an accolade for an Australian breeder. Also, I think the term compact, people automatically assume that it means dwarf. Yeah. And that's not necessarily the case. No. As is with the evergreen magnolias. Oh, yes, those little gems. (laughs) They might be compact, but they're big compact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they'll be big It's relative, isn't it? It's a relative term, compact. Yeah. Yeah. And, of course, in years to come, with all those people who are planting rows of little gem magnolias down their boundary lines, they're going to need a miner's lamp to walk around the garden because it's going to be so dark. It's false advertising, really, isn't it? (laughs) The problem is it's sort of 20 or 30 years down the track when people realise, and so it's far too late to go back to the original nurseryman and say, I told you, you know, I told you I wanted something yeah. that only grew to three or four metres. It was always got me with the, uh, you know, the McDonald's car park type conifers that, the, that used to be sold and the tags would always say grows to a metre in 10 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But they didn't say it doesn't stop growing after 10 years yes. and it actually will grow, yeah. continuously grow a metre every 10 years. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And what that's done is made conifers really unpopular. Yeah, which, which is, is a, a shame. Yeah. yeah, It is a shame because yeah. they're really interesting textural plants. Absolutely. Um, and I mean, you know, people go on about, um, you know, ancient plants and things and they make a big deal about certain things. They forget that conifers as a group 
uh, one of the ancient groups of plants. Mm -hmm. So any conifer that you plant in your garden was probably, well, cultivars excluded, but any species conifer you plant in your garden was probably around prior to the dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. You know, they're a really ancient group of plants. The conifers and the cycads uh, predate um, flowering plants. And so they're all ancient relic plants and have been remarkably successful when you think about it. So, and, and beautiful in the garden and, and, and forever changing with the seasons. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're always charged. They're on their own the, time. That's right. Yeah, they're not yeah. on the same time frame as, yeah. uh, as the deciduous stuff, are they? Oh, dear. All right, well, let's talk about another couple of plants because I have got images up, so we might as well quickly go through those while we're waiting for some more people to ring in. And remember, you can text us on 04888809855 or call us on the talkback line on 94190155. I bought in a cotinus. They're another group of plants that have become extremely popular of late Mm -hmm. and also new cultivars are popping up on the market comparatively frequently. And this is one that popped up, uh, well, for me, two or three years ago, maybe not much more, uh, the gold-leafed version. You know, most people are aware of the burgundy ones and Mm. there's a whole range of different burgundy ones you can get and there's the big green leaf one that goes stunning red in the autumn. They're really useful shrubs because they're they're heat tolerant, they're drought tolerant, they're cold tolerant. There's not too many things other than a bog that would kill them. That's right. Uh, And this one's gold spirit, and it comes out in the spring in a lovely limey colour with a little bit of green in it. Um, And it keeps its yellowy colour pretty well right through the summer uh, and then goes wonderful oranges and yellows and all sorts of colours before it sheds in the autumn. It still gets the classical fluffy grey plumes on it. Uh, It's a moderate sized shrub. It's not quite as big growing as the green one is, but it's three metres, I suppose, easily. And um, I think it's a really handsome shrub and I'm I'm quite taken with this gold one. Bit of shade? A little bit of shade, but not... Heavy shade, because like a lot of gold plants, it'll tend to green off a bit if it yeah. doesn't get a bit of light. But it would burn in the hot afternoon really sun. Really hot afternoon it? sun would burn it, especially yeah. if we get one of those 45 degrees with a howling mm-hmm. northwesterly. Um, but it's not as bad as some gold foliage okay. plants. So uh, I've got a friend who's got one out in full sun, and he gets the occasional burnt leaf on the top of it. Mm-hmm. But the body of the plant is generally fine. Mm. So I think Golden Spirit could be well worthwhile. Uh, There's another one, actually, that I've only just come across this year, which I think was imported by the Teese family a few years ago but hadn't really hit the market, one called uh, Canary, but spelled K-A-R-I-A-N-O. I canary. It's mm-hmm. uh, it's German for canary. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Apparently. Yeah. Um, and it's a green leafed one, uh, and it has pure white plumes, mm. which are just beautiful. And then it goes yellows in the autumn before it sheds, and that's just started to pop up around. Permeate. Yeah. So it's out there in a bit. It's yeah. already been wrong, wrongly named by somebody who will, will remain nameless because I guess the original name was harder to spell. Mm. Uh, so if you buy one called Kermit. Uh, it's the same plant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there you go. Have you ever encountered Young Lady? Yes, it's a good plant. It's a good one, yeah. yeah it's a yeah, smaller nice, grower. Com- compact yeah. plant and it plumes on the top of every stem. So and it's very pink. Yes. Yeah. yeah Talk so... about excluding pink from the garden. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. So the cottonus are great plants. Uh, they sailed through the uh, millennial drought mm-hmm. uh, with virtually no damage. Some of you, them... you see them growing in like... Uh, I'm, you drive through Chewton and there's beautiful big 
catenus growing in people's yeah. front yards in Tewton and the soil's terrible and it's yeah. horrible in winter and yeah. it's horrible in summer. <laughs> yeah. yeah, dare I say it's sort of pleurisy plains out that yeah, way. Yeah. Um, but they, they also are easily pruned. Yeah. Like they respond to pruning and, and really coppicing well. even, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. You, know, you, lose, you don't get the flowers so much, especially mm-hmm. with the bigger ones if you coppice them. You don't yeah. tend to get the plumes on the them. good but, foliage. Oh, the foliage yeah, is amazing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I think cottonus is definitely worthwhile looking into and there are now a number of choices mm-hmm. out there. So I think there's probably four, maybe five different burgundy ones with different shades of burgundy and different heights they grow to. Um, there's now a gold one. There's a few different green ones. So there's a lot of different uh, selections out there. So have a look at the smoke bushes. I think they're very, very worthwhile. And uh, I'm certainly happy to grow them in my own garden and I'm happy to stock them at the nursery. Um, they're certainly not one of the rarest things I grow, but certainly if you have a new cultivar come along, at least it's uncommon for the first few years. It's a little while. <laughs> yeah, until, mm. it, until it sort of hits the market in a big way, uh, if it ever does. Mm. And that's the other thing. Some things, for reasons unknown, just never quite step over that sort of I'm now a Bunnings plant type thing Mm. Um, and I'm happy to keep growing those and promoting them if I can so that's the cottonus and the only and the only other big shrub I bought in or the only other big plant I bought in uh, was one of the oak leaf tide rangers and it's the double flowered one snowflake which was fantastic it's the best Heidi yeah Yeah. it's gorgeous I mean it's autumn color at the moment is drop dead gorgeous it's just looking fabulous with its dark burgundy oak shaped leaves Mm -hmm. and I'm not always a fan of double flowers. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes a single flower mm. has, you know, the simplicity of nature that it should have. But I like this as a double flower because the flowers don't go over as fast. So no. they last and last and yeah. last and last and last. Yeah. Um, so they come out white and they're like little <clears throat> tiny formal double white camellias in a big head. And then they often green as they get older. And so you get this lovely sort of heads of mops of green flowers mm. hanging off it. Uh, and then, in, of course, in the autumn, winter, you've got the fabulous autumn foliage. And, and it hangs on to that. Oh, mine, mine do particularly. I'm not sure if they all do. But my the foliage on my ones out the front hangs on nearly all winter. Mm. So it'll keep that, you know, almost black burgundy colours all the way through winter and they only really fall off once the new foliage mm. starts growing on it. So they're almost evergreen. Yeah, they basically um, are. And they yeah. flower for a lot longer than a lot of the other Heidi's too. They, they start flowering a bit earlier than most of the Heidi's. And they keep And going. as you say, because the flowers persist because of the the double nature of them, they, you've got flowers on them for months. Mm. I've yeah. got mine in full sun until about yeah. one or two in the afternoon and That's they're right. fine. They like that, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they don't, I don't need water the water. Them. Yeah. No, yeah. They're great. Yeah. They're fabulous plants. Now, we've got a couple of messages that come in. We better have a quick look here what's going on. Um, oh, God. Somebody's rung in or sent a text in to know, uh, wonder if Xeronema calistamin is available in Australia. I'd be very doubtful. Uh, mm. I've lost it. Uh, I had Xeronema clistamin, and for those who don't know, it's a strappy leaf plant that comes from the Three Kings Islands in New Zealand, and it has these heads of brilliant scarlet bottle brush-like flowers on a clump of foliage that looks a bit like a kangaroo paw. Um, Yeah, and it is just exquisite. Uh, I've managed to kill my Xeronema clistamin, so I haven't got it anymore. I've got a small plant of Xeronema morii, which is the same sort of plant that comes from New Caledonia. Uh, There's only the two species, but I don't think it's available 
available commercially anyway. Well, you would be able to get seed probably from New Zealand tree seeds. Yeah, someone like that might yeah. have seed and, available. And they need to be kept in a pot and they need to be not repotted ever. Yeah. Really tight. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and then you'll flower them. Yeah, beautiful that's plant. That's about it. Is that the native habitat in between rocks? Or? Yeah, it does. Yeah. I've seen it, the New Caledonian one growing in the wild when I went trekking up Mount Moo uh, in New Caledonia and it tends to grow in little... Uh, crevices, crevices in yep. the rocks and, and it becomes a quite big plant but mm. with its roots anchored into this fairly yeah, minute right. little thing. And the islands are those, it's poor nights, isn't it? Poor yeah. nights, Lily, is rock. Yeah. yeah, that's, yeah. I mean, I've been out there a number of times yeah. and that's what it is. So, yeah. yeah so, so there you go. So I doubt that you're going to um, manage to get any of those here in Australia. Now, somebody's rung, uh, sent in a message about hornbeams. Uh, I would like to grow a hornbeam hedge to enclose the garden in a farm setting. It would be uh, exposed to frost. Well, that's fine in winter, uh, but also hot northerly winds in summer. Would this work? It'll burn. Yeah, I was going to say it'd burn too. And... Mm. Uh, uh, if you're going to grow a hornbeam edge, they're asking whether they should grow the general form or the fastigiate form. I'd grow the general form. Yeah. The fastigiate form stays too narrow and you're not going to lock your hedge in properly. Uh, yeah, I'd grow the fastigiate form. Would you? Yeah, because it's they do spread out quite a bit, but yeah. they're more compact. Yeah, but then you don't get that tie-in yeah. in the same way. So yeah. I would disagree with you on that, Craig, but that's part of life. That's you know? right. Uh, I would plant the classical form. Um you haven't said, Jack, where you are. Um, I mean, if it was in a farm setting down in Gippsland, yeah. I'd say yes. With a high rainfall. Yeah, yeah. go for the hornbeam. It yeah. would make a fantastic hedge. Mm-hmm. But if you're at sort of Nagambi or somewhere, mm. no. No, no, no. What about Acer Campastri? Yeah, that might be a better... They're so tough, aren't they? Yeah, they so, are. Yeah. Yeah. That's not used that often either, No, it? sadly. Bizarre yeah. because good it's plant just so tough. And good hedging material. Yeah. They, they, yeah. they really um, yeah. thicken up quickly. Yeah, so I can, love basic compestries. There was an old form of it growing out the front of our kitchen window in the house I grew up in. Yeah. It was planted in the 1870s or late 60, 1860s. And it was you could see it was a maple, but yeah. it's like, well, what sort of maple is that? It doesn't look, mm. quite look like a sycamore. And it yeah. was only as a teenager that I <laughs> figured out that it wasn't... Yeah. Yeah, like I, I'd never seen one before. Yeah, yeah it's, it's not only... planted all that often, oh, no. and it does do well. I convinced uh, the local council to plant some as a street tree in one of the streets in Gisborne, yeah. and it's doing really well. Yeah. It's making a really nice yeah. tree. So. Well, my, my feeling with hornbeams is that once you get over thirty-five degrees, the leaves burn. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. you could be right. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so maybe look at Acer Campestri. I remember seeing one growing under one of the flight paths of the. Uh, Melbourne Airport down in uh, Derowit Gwim, mm. which is a pretty grim place to grow things. Heavy soils, heavy hot frost. and dry, <laughs> heavy frosts. And it was the first year we had way back in the millennial drought and I was still on Gardening Australia and for some reason or other we'd been sent down to this place to use as a set to work from. Mm. Uh, their Lanicera hedges had been burnt on the top. Um, they had the box honeysuckle as a hedge mm-hmm. and, the, and the tops of the hedges had been burnt. That'll teach them. And and virtually everything in the garden was looking crispy except this Acer Campestri that was growing right out in the middle of a lawn and it was green and lush Mm. and just beautiful. So so that sort of did it for me, went to see one do so well when everything, even a Rabinia was burnt. Yep. Uh, But the Acer (laughs) still came through it. It was just amazing. Really thick leathery leaves on them. Oh, 
Yeah, so there you go. So maybe not hornbeam, uh, unless you are in a reasonably high rainfall cooler area, uh, in which case you can. And Craig and I are going to dispute whether you plant the general form or the fastidiate one. Um, and both are available in Australia. Yeah. Uh, but if I were planting a hornbeam hedge, I would have ordered the trees in January. Mm. from my retailer so that they could order them to have them come in this month. And they uh, need to be sheltered. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. so anyhow, so hornbeam heads is a, a great idea, but yes, at Macedon, the Dandenongs, all those sort of places, they're fabulous. Mm. Uh, but in the open plain areas, I think I'd think twice about them. Mm. So I hope that helps. Um, all right, now, uh, dear, it's all sort of... All right, we've got somebody on... Line eight, we've got Sharon. Are you there, Sharon? Hello, Sharon. What have I done wrong? I've done something wrong. Sharon, are you there? Yes. Ah, gotcha. Um, now, how can we help you this morning, Sharon? Uh, look, I don't know if you can. I've got a little plant that comes up. Well, it's just come up now. It dies right back over summer. It looks like a little lily. It's only very small. But it's got a delightful little flower, a sort of nodding head flower. What colour is it? The flower yeah. is ooh, plummy and it's striped plummy and green. Mm-hmm. Mm. Does the leaf have the occasional white spot on it? Yeah, it's got a right, white spot. Good. Yeah. Well, we've got it then, haven't yeah. we, Greg? Ah. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds like what we were talking about earlier, the uh, Arasarum vulgare, mm-hmm. um, the fries cow. So that, that's, yeah, the plant we were talking about earlier. Uh, it sounds it's like what you've got there. It's a little thing. Yeah. Oh, there, look, it's a pretty plant, but it is a thug. So, you and, know. and there are there are close relatives of it that have all the delights of Arasarum vulgare without the vulgarity. Which is the proboscidium, yeah, yeah, which is a little mouse plant. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's what yeah. it is. So Friar's Cowl or Monk's Cowl, uh, Arasarum vulgari is the plant that you've got in the garden. Right. Oh, thank you very much. So there you go. We did help. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> That's oh, a pleasure. Thing, one thing about ivy, I had ivy growing for years and I had to keep cutting it back. Yeah. Oh, gee, I had reactions with my eyes with it. It was awful. Yeah. Some people do have an allergic reaction to ivy, so that's another yeah. thing to consider with ivy. Yeah. Um, uh, and, of course, uh, like all climbing plants, this is the other thing. I mean, I, again, I am not encouraging people to plant ivy, so please don't get take no. me to task about it. But what I'm uh, saying about all climbing plants, I mean, they're like puppies. You, they're not just for Christmas. You plant a climbing plant, you have to train it, you have to prune it, you have to manage it. Uh, because yes. by nature, climbing plants are the recalcitrant children of the plant world, and they'll always grow in the direction you don't want them. They're nine times out of ten quite vigorous because they need to get to the top of the shrub or tree they're growing in Mm. the wild on Mm -hmm. and so they grow really quickly and if you don't take a very firm hand with almost any climber then they can all become a pest and a nuisance Mm. and 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 a pain in the neck by their their nature they're almost like a parasite they're acting in a similar way they're not stealing nutrients from anything else but they're stealing light yeah yeah, uh, without growing a trunk so yeah yeah Yeah. so yeah, yeah so all climbing plants require management. So I, I, I warn people when they plant things in their garden, you know, somebody says, oh, I'd like to grow a wisteria up my two-storey house and grow it all over the wall. And I say, well, you're now hitting 60. Should you be climbing ladders to prune your wisteria? Yeah. Wisteria are climbing trees. Yeah, they are. <laughs> yes. So, you know, so you, you have to be practical about these things and understand what your potential is to manage them. And if yeah. you can't manage them, please don't plant them. 
that's the way and, I look at it. And an unmanaged wisteria is a disaster. Oh, mm. yes. Yeah, I've seen a few of them around, and yeah. to try and bring them back again is yeah. just awful. That's right. Yeah, so yeah, so they're probably worse than ivy. I think, in some, yeah, yeah, mm, yeah, in some ways, yeah, they would strangle a big tree. I think, yeah, yeah. oh yeah, uh, wisteria. Although yeah. I have to say too that that does raise another funny issue. There used to be a big wisteria growing up a sugar maple in a garden on Mount Macedon called Dreamthorpe, beautiful old garden. Uh, the sugar maple was at the end of the double herbaceous borders, and in the spring when the wisteria was in flower, it was gorgeous. Mm-hmm. The sugar maple was nothing. Mm. It did nothing to add to the garden. It didn't even colour well in the autumn. You it couldn't was, even tap it because it's not cold enough. Yeah, exactly. So there was no no point to the sugar maple other than it was a support for the wisteria. Mm-hmm. And the people who owned it at the time had a tree surgeon working around the garden and they went away for the day and he was mm. chopping ch- stuff. Anyhow, he decided to take the wisteria down because it could kill the sugar maple and he did. And, of course, when the people got back, they were horrified um, because he wasn't looking at the garden for the trees. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, I will grow climbers up something that I don't actually think is a particularly important tree Mm. because I don't want to take it down, but it'll do a job for me. Mm. So why not indeed? All right, well, I hope that's helped you um, and uh, given you the information you needed. uh, And have a good morning. Thank you very much, David. Bye. Bye. Uh, all right, now we a question. Ah, we've had a question come in on using scoria in a bird bath, which apparently was discussed on a previous show. How much would you use? How to use it? And using it to clean a bird bath. I didn't listen to that program, so I'm not quite sure what the context is about the scoria. And to what end? Yeah, well, uh, apparently I think it was to try and help keep the water clean, but uh, I don't know how that would work. I know scoria is a porous volcanic rock Mm -hmm. so moisture can go into it Um, it's also high in nutrients because it's a uh, uh, volcanic rock so Mm. it's got a a lot of nutrients in it i certainly think it's a very great component for potting mixes and Mm. so forth it wasn't a particularly good material to use on driveways because it moved You'd walk it in on your shag pile carpet. Um, and For, co- Forest Glade has a half a kilometre of uh, scoria, red scoria driveway, and the maintenance guys at Forest Glade hate it. Yeah. Because every time it rains, you've got to go and empty out all the pits yeah, because and rebuild wash- the driveway. Yeah. <laughs> I find with the potting mixes, it is very difficult to get it to dry out. Yeah. Yeah, well, there is that side of it, but yeah. that can be useful if yeah, you're struggling yeah. to keep things watered too. Yeah. In another climate, it yeah. would probably be yeah. a good thing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but, the other thing with scoria, of course, is that because it's high in nutrients and what have you, it also makes a great seed bed. So why do you want a driveway that makes a great seed mm. bed? And also, yeah, I would have thought you'd get algae growing in your bird bath. Yeah, that's what I was sort of thinking. Mm. Yeah. yeah, so I'm not quite sure of the context yeah. of what this was. I'm sorry, and uh, all three of us are scratching our heads mm. trying to work out what it was all about. Unless it's a big sort of yeah, big uh, aggregate. Scoria, which yeah. could be quite useful, yep. like to pop a big, big chunky yep. bit of it in the bird bath, so the bees and birds have got something they to can climb sit on. on it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, which would make sense. But, but that I would guarantee also it'll algae. grow moss and yeah. algae and all yeah. sorts of stuff on it. So I don't think we're going to be much help with that question, unfortunately. Mm. Whomever was on the program that week uh, might be best to talk to the next time they're in. But I'm yeah. not quite sure even when that was discussed. So what can you say? All right, now I've got one more plant to mention. I'll get mine out of the way because they are on the um, social media feeds. And this is sort of a garden thug as well, really. Um, This is the winter flowering jasmine, jasmine of nudiflorum. Uh, It's indestructible. 
in fact, it'd be really hard to get rid of. <laughs> it's it layers any, anywhere it hits the ground, so you, it will keep moving sideways. Uh, but if you grow it as they do in England as a wall shrub and train it up a wall, uh, it can be a fabulous winter show because mm-hmm. it, it gets non-scented, bright yellow flowers, which it has on it for months. And so if you're looking for some colour and it will grow in semi-shade through to full sun, it's drought tolerant once its roots are down. And as I said, the only issue with it is it's inclined to layer whenever it hits the ground. So you've got to manage it so that it doesn't just keep going across your garden. Yep. Uh, I know of some gardens where it's become an absolute nightmare and mm-hmm. needs to be dug out. Uh, but I always find it really cheery when it's in flower and I like it. Um, so it's basically deciduous, so hence nudiflorum, so it flowers when it's naked. Um, and uh, through the summer months, it's not particularly inspiring or exciting. It's just a sort of mound of greenery. But in the winter, it can be quite a useful plant. Mm-hmm. Sounds a little bit scary. It is a little bit. You've got to, you've got to plant it with discretion. <laughs> yeah. And like the climbers we mentioned before, you need to manage it. Um, yeah. But look, nine-tenths of the best plants we grow in our gardens need managing either to keep them alive or to stop them taking over. That's right. And it's always a thing too, I'm sure you're both familiar with, and I certainly got when I had the nursery was everyone wants something that grows instantly and does everything yeah. and you give it to them and they complain it's a weed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I regularly get people come back and complain about plants I've sold them that were easy to grow. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, so, you know, it, it's sort of one thing or the other. Well, it comes back to the advantages of slow growing, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. 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 And yeah. I think slow growing is a huge advantage. Mm, well, definitely. it is. People don't see it, though, when they're starting a new no, garden, no. unfortunately. But fast is forever. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it yeah. is. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I regularly get people coming, oh, I need to plant something along the side fence. Our neighbour's kitchen window looks straight in our bathroom window or whatever. And I just say to them, walk around nude for a while and they'll stop looking. That's right. They're just <laughs> the blinds. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, I'd much rather plant something that does take a little bit of time because you're right. Then I don't have to manage it later. That's mm. right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So be patient with your garden. I think we. I think I've mentioned this before. I think we need to start the slow garden movement. Absolutely, we do. You know, because yeah. we've had the slow cooking movement that mm-hmm. seems to have been quite successful in its way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we need the slow gardening movement. And any of you who've been gardening on the one site for a while will realise just how quickly time goes past, and you turn around and you think, "Oh my God, I've got a tree." Did mm-hmm. uh, I plant that? Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah, yeah. I see trees in other people's gardens that I sold as a very young horticulturalist that are seriously big trees now and I mm-hmm. can't believe that those things were something I propagated. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've noticed that in a few gardens yeah, now yeah, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it gets a bit scary. <laughs> um, and I expect people to turn around and say, Stephen, but you don't look that old. And they never do. <laughs> I never quite worked that out. Yeah. Um, oh, we've got Lois online, so we better go in and see if we can pick her up. Lois, are you there? Yes, Stephen. Ah, good. Thank you very much. That's a pleasure. Thanks, Welcome. And thank you for remembering that I called in. That was very nice. But the trouble is, I can't remember exactly the question I wanted to ask. (laughs) Oh, dear. We're all speaking about the botanical garden and how many we actually have in Victoria, which was amazing. Yes, it's got more here here than anywhere. I wondered myself, being an older person, whether or not all these botanic gardens have evolved through people growing different plants, giving cuttings away, those cuttings growing and being given and evolving as these wonderful gardens. 
I think it's almost the opposite. What happened was the reason Victoria ended up with a lot of botanic gardens is we had the gold rush. We had yeah. oodles of money, so we were building those beautiful big buildings in Melbourne, unfortunately many of which have disappeared since. Yeah, uh, it's terrible. And a lot of the provincial areas were very proud of their their uh, towns and, and money that they were making. And a way to show your stature as a major town back then was, in fact, to build the botanic gardens. Uh, and so what was generally done was a site was allocated by the local council or the city council yeah, or whatever. Like yeah, like Melton has done recently and like places like Camperdown did back in the 1860s or whenever. Um so the, the local fathers of the town, and it seemed to always be the fathers of the town, set aside a plot of land. Then they would get somebody to landscape the garden. So they might have bought in Guilfoyle. Um, I know Camperdown was basically designed by the first uh, director of the Geelong Botanic Gardens, um, and his name doesn't show up all that often. Um, but, you know, or you might have had somebody else who was a, a well-known landscape designer like the Sangster and Taylor Nursery, and yeah. they would design the gardens and then money would be allocated to purchase trees because they had to have the things that were going to be the right plant for the right job. So if people donated plant material, it often was the wrong plant material to do the job that they wanted. So they had a specific plant list as a rule that they would work from, um, They'd often find room for some rare and valuable plant if they if it came their way, but generally speaking, it was a designed and organised thing. It wasn't something that just sort of grew ad hoc. Does that make right, sense? Right. Yes, yes, of course it does. Yeah, so so that's what happened. It was all because of the gold rush, basically, uh, is what did it. Uh, and our very proud <laughs> founding fathers who decided to show off their towns. And right. we're now living with the um, legacy uh, of those. And I can put a plea out there to all town councils, country councils, if you've got a really nice botanic gardens, don't whack a blasted caravan park in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. And no, that's no, no. what happened a lot because council saw it as free land and so they'd often repurpose parts of their botanic gardens. Mm. Camperdown has still got a caravan park in theirs and it's really yeah. unfortunate. And where Virginia comes from, um, up that way they've got caravan park at the base of that um, little botanical gardens they've got up there. Oh, have they? I'm, I'm not familiar with that one, but they certainly had a caravan park in the one in Kyneton mm. and it was there for decades and that's decades. The one, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that Kyneton. one they got rid of. That's yeah, well, that's more my area than Virginia's. Yeah. But uh, 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 yes, Warburton, the, I know no, Warrnambool. I think has a caravan park too. Does it? Uh, yeah, it's very unfortunate because some of these botanic gardens are really mm. important historically because they've been there a long time. They've got really important trees in them, and in the yeah. end, at Kyneton, they got rid of the botanic uh, the caravan park because many of the trees that people had their caravans under they couldn't manage the trees anymore no, and no. it was actually becoming dangerous mm-hmm. so they couldn't get their tree surgeons you don't, you don't want a caravan underneath an area carrier yeah well there was always vandalism and stuff going on as well so i hope that answers your question lois well it does to a certain except that i was uh wondering about one particular plan that stephen and them uh, discussed and it, I thought it came from Queensland, and it was a very rare plant that grew um, in bad soil near a rock. And I don't know whether Craig can remember, but Craig, uh, being such a helpful 
person like yourself, I better add them. But um, uh, I spoke to him, as I said uh, to Matt, that um, I really uh, got held up and I couldn't get back to him early in the week. And then we had a couple of things go on and uh, one of the grandsons had a bit of an accident and our oh, daughter dear. was having a, um, an art exhibition over at Montalvaz and that was Thursday night and so we've really been a bit busy. Oh, well, if you think of... Um, if you think of what it is, well, let us know. And, of course, you can ring any of us. I mean, you can ring Craig yes, at work. You can ring me at work. Um, and we're more than happy to answer questions if you yes. need to. And uh, as I said, very helpful of both of you. All right. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I know um, Craig's got a very nice garden up there. And I was glad to hear him talking about the – and you talking about the black-stemmed hydrangea. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really interesting plant. Yes, all right, one. Lois, we yeah. better move on because I've got a couple of more calls yeah. coming well, through. Thank you all for being kind enough to ring out on the phone. All right. I thought, well, I better not ring and say something because I'll think, oh, she's a muddled old lady, which I know I am. <laughs> well, we're all getting to be muddled old people. I mean, that's just <laughs> write, the way it I is. I write on scraps of envelopes, um, recipes, and I write on them for other things like the plants, uh, there you go. All right. All right, well, guys, have a good day. And All right, same to you. Free. All right, bye. bye, Lois. Thank you, bye. Bye. All right, we've got uh, Ian in Sunbury. Are you there, Ian? Hi, guys, how are you going? Good, thank you. How can we help uh, you? I've got two questions. Yeah. Um, one is I've got an issue, um, a little disease or bug issue with um, some of my native plants, uh, there's a lily pilly at the, just at the front door that's really copping it. Um, it's that um, uh, spelt. It's uh, silid. Oh, silids. Yeah. Silids. Yeah. Yeah. Now, um, I I tried hitting it with some organic spray. I tried pruning it back. Um, I've tried a few uh, things. Uh, I went down to the big barn and spoke to them, and they pointed me to this kind of nuclear. Um, solution, <laughs> um, uh, and um, it, it it seems to, it, it went away for a while, and it seems to have come back again. Um, and it will. And yeah, yeah. And, and look, is it something that I should be really worried about, or is it just something that I could, I, I, you know, I could let just happen? Well, if the plants look really, really ordinary, <laughs> then you really need to um, consider whether you keep them or not. Is the way I'd look at it. That's my view. Yeah. If, if it's affecting right. the, the, the uh, aesthetics of the plant, then chuck it out and plant something that's not going to be yeah. impacted. Yeah. yeah okay. I mean, the plants will survive. Yeah. But, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, it's not something that I would see as, uh, as something I would want to keep in the garden, I have mm. to say. And lots of the lily pillies are very prone to psyllid attack. So mm. they've supposedly yep. got some new cultivars that are less prone to attack. I don't know how good they are, though. Well, they're subtropical. Uh, I've, I've actually bought a couple of those. Yeah. Um, and uh, they, uh, they, yeah, they don't have it. Um, they, they're actually, yeah, um, oh, they're resistant. And, yeah, uh, there's a couple of uh, different varieties right. that you can get. All right, yeah. Ian, we keep, need to keep moving on because we've only got a couple of minutes left. So what was your second okay. question? we better get second on to question. that. Yep, yep, very quickly. Um, got a ba- an old banks here that uh, I needed to chop back uh, from the storms. One of the branches had dropped down. Um, and uh, underneath it, I had a, always had a whole heap of uh, nasturtiums that came and went. Uh, but, but by, by um, uh, cutting it back, um, 
uh, it's let a lot of uh, extra light in, so the weeds are just going crazy. Mm. Now, um, I'm just wondering, uh, could you suggest uh, some really nice ground cover, or sort of some low shrubs um, that, you know, will keep the weeds down, something I can put under there? It will get uh, dappled shade, uh, full sun to dappled shade most of the time. All right, well, uh, if, if it's under a big old banksia, I'd be looking at some other native, perhaps like some mm-hmm. corriers. Yeah, corrier. Yeah, so oh, yeah. some of the small corriers, maybe some of the smaller yep. growing grevilleas might work if they mm-hmm. get some light. So yep. they'd, be the, they'd be the main ones, and, I think. And a trailer load of wood chip to suppress mm. the weeds. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I sort of, I, I, I've got a lot of uh, nasturtiums under there, which, which it, uh, for some parts of the year actually do quite yeah. well in keeping the weeds down. All right, good, um, Ian. So... Yeah. All yeah. right, then. All right, I've got to go because we're coming yep, towards beautiful. the end of the program. But thank you for No reading. worries, mate. All right. Thank you. Cheers. All right. Bye. Bye. All right, we are coming to the end of the program, folks. So thank you for being involved in the garden program this morning. Um, I'm Stephen Ryan. Thank you, Greg Balderston. Uh, thank you, Craig Wilson. And thank you, the guys who are outside dealing with bringing in the calls and so forth. So hopefully we'll all catch up with you next week. And bye from us. Bye.